The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Vic Reclitus, Washington correspondent for Market Watch, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Bharat Ramamurthy. He's the deputy director at President Biden's National Economic Council and an advisor for Strategic Economic Communications. Bharat, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I wanted to start off by talking about student loan forgiveness. This is an area you've done a lot of work on. And obviously, yesterday, the Supreme Court heard arguments on uh, potentially striking down President Biden's uh, plan for student loan forgiveness. Uh, so for starters, I wanted to ask, um, I mean, what stood out from you for you um, from yesterday's proceedings? Well, I think that uh, the administration made a very strong case yesterday for the legality of the actions that the Secretary of Education took here. The administration explained that under the HEROES Act, which is a, a legal provision governing uh, student loans, uh, the Secretary of Education has quite broad authority to uh, ensure that student loan borrowers are not made off, made worse off relative to their loans uh, because of an emergency such as the pandemic. Uh, and that the Secretary of Education very thoughtfully used that authority in a targeted way to provide debt relief to lower income and middle income borrowers as part of a broader plan to get borrowers back into repayment, which is scheduled for later this year. So uh, we feel quite good about how things went yesterday. We think that the uh, Solicitor General made a very strong case, both on the merits uh, of, the, of the use of authority here and also on the question of standing, which is an important legal uh, concept, which says that the people bringing this lawsuit have to show that they were actually injured by the actions taken here. And we think that the Solicitor General made a quite strong case that uh, all of the plaintiffs represented before the court yesterday had not shown that they would actually be injured in any way from the actions that the secretary has taken. Was there anything um, from yesterday's proceedings that uh, was especially surprising for you or anything that was especially discouraging from your point of view or encouraging? No, look, I, I think that the uh, if you looked at the briefs going into the argument yesterday, uh, the arguments quite well tracked uh, the arguments that had been made previously uh, in the written materials. We, we, we went into this uh, with a very strong view that, number one, these plaintiffs had not demonstrated that they have been injured by the actions of the secretary and therefore do not have legal standing to bring this case. And second of all, even if they do have standing, that they haven't shown that we acted outside the law. You know, there was one moment that stood out to me a little bit where uh, Justice Kagan said something to the effect of, uh, we deal with a lot of uh, confusing unclear statutes in our line of work, but this is not one of them. The, the legal authority that the secretary relied upon here is crystal clear, it's broad and flexible, it's meant to give the secretary of education a pretty broad berth when it comes to managing the $1.6 trillion federal student loan program to make sure that borrowers are not made worse off because of a national emergency. And I think what the secretary has done here fall squarely within that board. Um, maybe one more student loans question. Um, if the court doesn't go your way, if the plan is, 
plan for forgiveness is struck down, what can you tell us about the administration's backup plan? I mean, look, we have one plan. It's the plan that we've announced. It's the plan where uh, 26 million people have already uh, submitted information showing that they qualify for relief. It's the plan that has allowed uh, all, us already to approve 16 million people for, re for relief. Uh, that's the plan we're going with. We think it's legal. We think it's the right approach. Um, and, and there is no, cur no current backup plan or anything like that. We believe that uh, we've done the right thing and it was legal and that we're going to win. Okay, um, let's switch over to kind of the broad economy. Um, uh, I mean, what are the main things that the administration can do uh, to bring down inflation? Uh, with that, I mean, are you spending too much um, and just adding to inflation? Yeah, the president has been clear that uh, for the last year plus, really, his number one focus has been uh, bringing down the costs that American families face. Uh, the Fed's mandate, as you well know and your, and your viewers know, is to uh, pursue full employment while at the same time maintaining price stability. And they have tools, namely interest rates, to accomplish that goal. Our goal as the executive branch is to use all the tools that we have to bring down costs, bring down prices for folks. And we have used them very aggressively. You know, let me give you a few examples. Number one, uh, when we had the huge run-up uh, in wholesale gas prices following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the president uh, ordered a historic 180 million uh, barrel release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And analysts have found that that action alone uh, has caused the price of gas to come down by between 30 and 40 cents. Uh, we have taken steps in the Inflation Reduction Act that we passed last year, number one, to cap uh, the cost of insulin uh, and, to cap, and to negotiate prescription drug prices, which are two uh, important uh, costs that many families face. And that was the first bill in a very long time that actually reduced the federal budget deficit. It's projected to reduce the deficit by $200 billion over the next 10 years and about a trillion dollars over the next two decades. So uh, uh, in those areas, in broadband, for example, there's a new program that we have rolled out where uh, lower income, middle income families get $30 a month off of high speed internet. And already 16 million households across the United States are participating in this program, saving $360 a year uh, on internet costs. So uh, we are committed to using every single tool that we have to bring down the everyday costs that families face. And the Fed is going to do its part uh, to bring inflation down as well. Uh, there is a lot of discussion about companies uh, using rising costs to increase prices more than they actually need to. Um, basically, the talk about corporate greed. Um, I was wondering, um, to what extent do you think that's a problem, um, and should limited price controls be considered? Uh, here, here's what we have said about this. There are certain industries uh, that tend to be quite uh, concentrated, where there's some evidence that, uh, that companies have been able to raise prices more quickly and to keep them higher for longer. So we've, we've pointed that out in the meat processing space, where there's uh, you know, three or four companies tend to control the vast majority of the market. Uh, we talked about it in the ocean shipping industry, where three global alliances control almost every single east-west shipping route uh, between here and Asia, and where we saw prices go up tenfold during the pandemic. Uh, and in those areas, we've made the case that we need to promote more competition or institute other reforms in order to uh, make sure that prices come down. And in fact, 
after the president pointed out these issues in the ocean shipping industry uh, in the 2022 State of the Union address, we got uh, broad bipartisan support. I think it was 360 votes in the House of Representatives, uh, 100 Republicans or so, to support efforts to reform that industry and promote more competition uh, in that sector. So uh, the, the short answer is um, there is evidence in certain industries uh, that are highly concentrated uh, of, uh, of margins rising quite significantly uh, and companies being able to raise prices higher for longer. And so we have taken a very targeted approach to calling that out and seeking reforms in those areas. Okay. Uh, there, there has been some talk about um, maybe limited price controls should be considered or um, even wage controls. Uh, what's your thinking in that area? Uh, look, I, I think as a as a general matter, that's not something that we have uh, discussed as an economy wide solution. On the other hand, uh, we we instituted a thirty five dollar a month cap on insulin, right there, that which is effectively a, a price control in that one area. That's an area where uh, millions of families uh, rely on this medicine to survive, where some families are paying as much as. $400 in government uh, markets and over $1,000 in, in the private market for, um, for insulin that they need. Uh, and where we believe that given the fact that it costs about $10 to uh, a vial to manufacture insulin, uh, that it's reasonable to impose some restriction uh, on what companies can charge people. That's not going to be the solution that we support uh, in other areas. It's really case by case uh, and dictated by uh, how those markets are performing. Okay. Um, and I want to take a moment now to remind viewers that they can submit questions um, for Barat, and uh, I'll do my best to ask them. Um, I want to ask another economy question while we wait for the viewer questions to roll in. Um, one prominent economist got a lot of attention last week uh, with, with some concerns that he raised. Uh, Larry Summers uh, said he's worried about a wily coyote moment, uh, meaning basically the economy falling off a cliff. Uh, he flagged inventories building up relative to sales, companies reporting concerns over their order books, uh, businesses employing too many staff relative to their output, uh, and decreasing consumer savings. Um, uh, he's a really prominent guy. What response do you have to, to his concerns? He's been right on some things uh, so far. Yeah, what I will say was that, is that we carefully monitor all of those uh, data points uh, and more, and we try to continuously update uh, our view of where the economy is. Where we see the economy right now is, number one, an extraordinarily strong labor market. 3.4% unemployment, the lowest unemployment rate that we've had uh, in more than half a century. Uh, good news on the wage front where uh, uh, wages are up across the income spectrum, but particularly for lower income workers who haven't gotten a raise uh, in a long time. Uh, and that those wages have been rising faster than inflation uh, for each of the last seven months. If you look at uh, data about uh, household balance sheets, basically signs of distress uh, uh, among uh, typical lower income and middle income households, uh, a lot of those are in pretty good shape, in many cases better than they were in uh, pre-pandemic. And then if you look at data about business investment, uh, consumer spending, uh, all of that paints a picture of a, a, a robust economy where people have uh, quite a bit of confidence in their current financial condition, and also where they see the economy heading. So uh, we, we think all of that uh, has to be taken into consideration. Of course, there are uh, headwinds and risks that we are always monitoring and want to uh, try to get understanding get ahead of. Uh, but overall, we think that the economy uh, is in good shape right now. 
Um, uh, so for our readers um, and for Americans in general, they've seen their retirement accounts uh, drop a lot in the last year. So uh, the S&P 500 was down uh, 19 percent in 2022. Um, and this is after President Biden, September 2021, he said uh, the stock market had gone up exponentially since he'd been president. Um, what's your message for people who aren't happy about what's happened to their 401ks and at least uh, in part uh, blame the Biden administration for for the declines? Yeah, well, I, I would hope that those folks also take into account what happened in 2021 when the president came to office, which is uh, quite a historic uh, increase in stock prices overall. Uh, the, the bigger point here is that um, the markets are going to go up and down. Uh, the, the, the main measure that the president has about the state of the economy is how are middle class families doing? Do they have good paying jobs that allow them to support themselves uh, and their families? Uh, are they seeing their wages go up? Do they feel like they have good opportunities to advance in their career, good opportunities to switch jobs and make more money uh, or, or live in a better neighborhood or whatever the case may be? Uh, by those metrics, we think that the economy uh, is doing very, very well. And look, it's important to remember, I, I completely understand that uh, a lot of people are focused uh, on their retirement accounts and 401ks. Uh, but it's important context that about half of American households don't have any money invested in the stock market, not, not a single dollar, no IRA, no 401k, no pension. And so while we care about how the stock market is doing, we obviously would like to see uh, strong performance there so that people have more retirement security for those people who are invested in it. It's important to remember that that really doesn't have an effect on about half of American households. And for those households, what really matters is, are they getting a good job? Are they getting paid more? Are they able to afford uh, school and daycare and the cost of prescription drugs and everything else that they need to buy? Uh, and, and we feel like uh, given the 3.4% unemployment rate, given what we've seen on wages, uh, the Biden economy has really delivered for those folks. Okay, uh, great. So here's a question from a viewer, uh, still sort of in the realm of um, retirement security, actually. Um, uh, his name is Vincent. Uh, he's asking about the security of Social Security. Um, I think what he's getting at is, I mean, it's it's widely known there's a problem with long-term funding for Social Security and, and also Medicare as well. Um, what's the Biden administration's plan for, for fixing that? Yeah, great. I'm glad that uh, Vincent has raised this because it's something that's very near and dear to the president's heart. So number one, uh, the president will oppose any cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Uh, unlike the Republican Party, which has been uh, uh, quite clear and quite relentless in pursuing uh, cuts to both programs, the president will defend uh, every single dollar of benefit uh, that people are owed under that program. And, and remember, these are programs that everyone pays into. So uh, the president will defend all of the money that you have contributed to these programs and make sure that it's there for you uh, when you need it. Second of all, on Medicare, I don't want to get out ahead of the uh, formal release of the president's budget, which will happen uh, on March 9th. But the president has already previewed that he has put proposals in that budget that would extend the solvency of Medicare, Medicare by two decades uh, and, uh, and do that by uh, closing a loophole that allows uh, wealthier people with a lot of investment income not to, to contribute to Medicare uh, out of that income. Uh, nothing that would affect anybody who makes under $400,000 a year. Uh, just by making that one change, we can extend uh, Medicare solvency by two decades. Uh, on Social Security, the president has uh, has said that uh, you know he's supportive of measures 
that would uh, bring in additional revenue to the Social Security program, uh, as long as that does not in, in include any kind of tax increase on, on anyone making under $400,000 a year. So um, there's quite a few different proposals that fall into that category. All of them are ones that the president is happy uh, to have a discussion about. He understands that uh, that we do have to address Social Security solvency and it's something that uh, he, he wants to have an open discussion on. on. But it's important for people to remember, by far the biggest threat to Social Security right now uh, is not, you know, sometime down the line, the possibility of insolvency is the fact that the Republican Party, uh, leaders across the Republican Party are itching to cut Social Security benefits, raise the retirement age, slash benefits for people who have paid into the program, uh, and the president is going to be opposed to all of those efforts. Um, let me ask you about... Um the proposal from Senators Angus King and Bill Cassidy that's gotten some attention this week. Uh, so they're reportedly proposing to raise the full retirement age to around 70 um, from 67. Um, and they want to create also a so sovereign wealth fund that would help fund sovereign, uh, help fund Social Security. Um, what does the administration think of, of what we're hearing from, from these two senators? Well, I'll be honest, I'm not sure if they've released all of the details of, of their proposal, including the sovereign wealth fund uh, we'll want to take a look at all of that uh, when it's been finalized and actually uh, introduced. I would say it, uh, an increase in the retirement age is effectively a benefit cut for people, and the president is against benefit cuts. So um, uh, we look forward to reviewing the details of these proposals. We appreciate the fact that senators are putting their ideas out there into the mix, but I, but I want to reiterate our view that uh, anything that results in a benefit cut for Social Security recipients is something that we're opposed to. Okay. Um, also, you mentioned uh, the budget that's coming out in a week. Um, what, you, what else can you tell us about some highlights from that budget uh, so far for fiscal 2024? Yeah, there's a few elements that the president has previewed that I'm happy to, uh, to talk through. The first one is what I already mentioned on Medicare. Uh, by making some changes to the tax code that only affect people making over $400,000 a year, uh, we can extend the solvency of the Medicare program uh, by about two decades. That's something that the, the president supports. Uh, the second thing that the president has previewed uh, is that he's already established a track record on fiscal responsibility. The deficit has come down $1.7 trillion since he's taken office. Uh, but to build on that, his uh, budget would, um, uh, would further reduce the deficit uh, by $2 trillion over the next two decades uh, based on the combination uh, of spending reductions and uh, revenue measures that he's gonna propose in his budget. The other thing that the budget is going to do is show how we can make robust federal investments in the middle class that allow our economy to grow uh, the way it has been for the last two years. Remember, we have gained 12 million jobs since the president has taken office. Uh, we've seen uh, two very strong years of economic growth since the president has taken office. Uh, we want to build on that. Uh, we want a, a budget that invests in American families, invests in American manufacturing, invests in American production, brings our supply chains back home, creates good jobs, uh, and, and powers American economic growth for years to come. Uh, that's what the budget's going to propose. Okay, uh, great. So here's another viewer question. Uh, they just give their initials, so I'm not, I think, so I'm not quite sure the full name, but um, they're asking about uh, Warren Buffett's comment on stock buybacks. Uh, they'd like you to talk about that. So, I mean, of course, the Biden administration has criticized uh, corporate stock buybacks um, and wants to quadruple the tax on buybacks. Um, Warren Buffett just defended them. He said, uh, 
when you are told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders or to the country or particularly beneficial to CEOs, you are listening to either an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue, characters that are not mutually exclusive. Um, so what's your take on this defense of stock buybacks by Buffett? Who was a Biden voter in 2020? Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's important to look at what, uh, what Mr. Buffett said there, which is that uh, anybody who says all stock buybacks are bad uh, is being misleading. Uh, that's not the president's position. You know, the president has been very clear that uh, he's not out there proposing to ban all stock buybacks or anything like that. His point, uh, he has two key points here. Number one, what we have seen over the last uh, few decades is a trend where uh, companies, American companies, take more and more of their earnings and rather than reinvesting it into the business, whether that's in research and development or uh, better wages for workers or uh, expanding production domestically, uh, they are returning more and more of those earnings to shareholders in the form of stock buybacks. I think it's something like in, in the early 80s, about 50% of earnings went to, to buybacks and dividends. Now that's uh, above 90%. And the president's view is that uh, we need to make sure that American corporations are, number one, making sure that, that uh, workers are getting a fair share of what they help produce, the corporate earnings they help produce. And number two, that we're investing uh, so that 10, 20, 30 years from now, American co companies are still leading the way internationally uh, because they've invested in research and development, because they've invested in that new facility that's going to produce a new product. Uh, and so uh, he's concerned uh, about the, the ratio or the, the imbalance between uh, that reinvestment and the amount that goes to buybacks. And his entire policy agenda is about trying to reset the incentives a little bit, right? So for example, he's already passed into law as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, a 1% tax on stock buybacks. That's not a, a ban on stock buybacks. What that does is, first of all, it helps equalize the treatment uh, a little bit between buybacks and dividends. Uh, because as you know, and your viewers probably know, dividends are taxed, but the way that buybacks are taxed, there's a, there's a financial incentive for companies to pursue buybacks rather than dividends. As a sort of policy matter, it makes sense for those two things to be roughly uh, equalized, and the 1% tax helps move us uh, in that direction. Uh, and second of all, for companies that are right at the margin between deciding, should we do a buyback or should we uh, put that money back into the company in some other way, this tax you know, could nudge them towards putting the money back into the company. And what we're going to do as part our part of the bargain is continue to make America a great place to invest. You've already seen, uh, since the president has come to office, hundreds of billions of dollars in investment in production uh, across the United States. Uh, new EV manufacturing in Michigan, you know, Texas Instruments building chips in Texas, uh, Intel announcing a $100 billion investment outside of Columbus, Ohio to build uh, chips here. Uh, that's the kind of business environment that we want to create. Uh, and so anyway, to get back to, to the Buffett's point, uh, he, he, we, we do not hold the position that, the, that, that he is criticizing there. Uh, and I think that there's a pretty broad consensus uh, backing up the president's view uh, that there's the steps that we can take in order to swing the pendulum back closer to the way it was uh, a few decades ago, where corporations, sure, returned a lot of money to shareholders, but they also put a lot of that money back into the corporation to build for the future. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, there's a viewer named Hal who has a debt limit question. 
Um, so, I mean, the background is that there's growing concerns about um, the debt limit standoff and how there could be real market turmoil if Democrats and Republicans uh, can't handle this issue. Um, so he's asking, uh, is the debt limit going to be raised? Uh, and if I could tack on to that, I mean, the president has met with Speaker McCarthy. Um, what, but what are some other moves that the administration is taking to make sure we don't have uh, a lot of chaos this summer or fall? Yeah, I want to be uh, clear about the context here. So uh, the Republican Party is uh, threatening to uh, withhold their support for raising the debt limit, which is effectively threatening to default on the debt for the first time in this country's history. And the implications of that are severe. We are talking about potentially a global economic crisis. We are talking about uh, certainly higher costs for American families, higher credit card costs, higher mortgage costs, potentially threatening the payment of paychecks to members of the military, uh, potentially threatening social security checks going to retirees who need that uh, money coming in in order to sustain, uh, in order to pay for their housing, pay for their medication, pay for their food. That's what the Republicans are threatening. And uh, we have never defaulted in the history of this country. Uh, and just in the previous administration under President Trump, Republicans acted three times to address the debt limit without any conditions attached to that, even at the same time as that administration racked up $8 trillion in additional debt. So all we are asking is for the Republicans, the House Republicans, to do exactly what they did under President Trump, which is raise the debt limit, make sure we don't default on our debt, uh, don't attach any conditions to it. And then separately, if they want to have a conversation about uh, federal spending, federal revenue, the deficit, where we go from here, we're more than willing to have that conversation. You know, we are putting out our budget on March 9th that is going to say line by line by line, here's all the tax revenue we're in favor of, here's all the government spending we're in favor of, here's how it all pencils out in terms of the, the deficit. As I said, it's going to reduce the deficit by $2 trillion over the next 10 years. It's going to extend the solvency of the Medicare program. We would say to the Republicans, what's your plan? All we've heard so far is some of some members talking about wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare in order to reduce federal spending. We've heard some other, frankly, uh, wacky ideas like imposing a 30% national sales tax in lieu of the income tax, which would be a massive hit to lower income and middle income families trying to buy gas and clothes for their children and food at the grocery store. Uh, and we've heard about uh, further tax cuts for millionaires and for big corporations to the tune of two to three trillion dollars in additional uh, deficits. Those are the ideas we've heard from the Republican Party so far, at the same time that they're threatening to default on our debt and cause a global economic collapse. So the, my, my view is uh, if Republicans act responsibly, then yes, we're going to address the debt limit the way we have 78 times in the past. Uh, and make sure that we avoid any kind of economic uh, implications from that. But really the focus and the pressure should be on the Republican Party right now to, to commit, uh, as many business leaders have, as they have in previous administrations with a Republican president, commit to raising the debt ceiling without any, any conditions attached. Okay. Um, let me ask you a, an immigration question as we're winding down here. Um, I mean, many businesses have said they're short on workers and immigration reform uh, could help with that. Um, one analyst told us the immigration bill that might have the best prospects is the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. 
Um, I want, want to ask, I mean, do you agree with that? Um, and what other progress uh, do you think could be made? Yeah, look, I think if you, uh, if you look at the data on uh, our labor supply, uh, there's a few issues going on. Number one, there's a broad demographic trend towards aging in the workforce. In other words, more people uh, year by year are aging out of the workforce. You know, they're hitting 65 or 70 or whatever the case may be than hitting 18 and entering the workforce. And that's just a broad demographic trend in the United States and frankly, in many other uh, developing countries as well that we uh, are gonna have to grapple with. Uh, second of all, uh, we can't diminish the effect of COVID on our, uh, our, on our labor supply still. I mean, not only do we have uh, the hundreds of thousands of Americans who lost their lives uh, to COVID, you have a lot of people who are uh, still, still dealing with lingering symptoms from COVID. Uh, still dealing with family members who may have lingering symptoms, and that's keeping them out of the workforce. Uh, and then you have other major issues like, for example, childcare. If you look at um, uh, survey data about why people are not in the labor force, a big reason is that uh, they are tied up either taking care of a child, taking care of some other dependent, like somebody with a disability, uh, or in some cases taking care of an elderly parent or a relative. Uh, so that's why uh, the president has made addressing the, the incredible cost of care, such a central part of his uh, agenda. It's not just about reducing costs for families. It's good for our economy because it's going to free up more people to enter the workforce if they choose to do that. Uh, immigration is another tool. And we have been, um, I think, uh, aggressive uh, and thoughtful and creative in trying to figure out ways uh, of, um, of addressing the historic decline uh, in, in immigration that we have seen uh, in recent years. That's certainly one lever that we have. Uh, we're, we're open to working with Congress on different solutions. The president's plan, which he put forward on the very first day in office, is a comprehensive immigration reform bill that would not only strengthen uh, border security, uh, but would make other reforms to the system that would have the effect of bringing in uh, more immigrants in a thoughtful and responsible way over the next few years. So. Um, uh, if Congress wants to have a thoughtful uh, discussion about immigration, we're, we're more than welcome uh, to doing that. But I think we should start by uh, addressing the comprehensive bill that the president has put forward. Okay. Um, well, that's, um, that's all the time that we have for today. I know you have a hard stop. Um, thank you very much for being here with us, Bharat. Um, there will be no Barron's Live tomorrow. Um, we'll return on Friday. That'll be uh, Jonathan Olshin, head of U.S. real estate at UBS Global Wealth Management, and he'll join uh, Mansion Global Managing Editor Becky Strum. I'll talk about opportunities in the rental market, what investors should consider, um, and the broader real estate market. Um, so thanks again, Bharat. Uh, thank you all for tuning in, um, and uh, we'll see you next time. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.